the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. We're closing out the year right now. We are. It's hard to believe that this is our final episode of the year. What a crazy year it's been. I don't even need to go into <laughs> it or or digress or yeah. re- reflect or anything. Um, we're still recording remotely. Hey. Yeah, we're still recording remotely, <laughs> and I just want to look forward, damn it. We wanted to end the year on something light because this damn year's been tough on everybody. We also want to end it on something fun and light because we're going to take a five-week break from you all. Um, but we are coming back at the end of January with some fun and great new episodes. But today, we'll be talking about 9 to 5. Probably one of, I don't know, maybe my favorite Dolly Parton movie. It's mine too, and and really, uh, I've been jamming the song. What a great song! I've it's been a jamming. jam, and it's a crossover jam too. Like anyone can get down with us. You don't have to like country music, pop music. You could, if it, it just has a great beat. It's Dolly Parton. It's and it's got a message behind it. Well, I can't wait to talk about this one with you, Justin, and close out Dolly December. A lot of things about this movie I did not know. I hope that's the same for our listeners. I hope that this is a movie that uh, you didn't know a lot about and that we can uh, enlighten you on a lot of things. One of the main things being that this movie was inspired by a lot of, of real events that were happening within the workplace in the late 70s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, women in the workplace not being respected, not being treated as equal. Strangely, that same sort of thing is happening, you know, <laughs> some 40 years after this movie was made, which is Really, yeah, really sad, yeah. but we're going to get into a little bit of the the story behind the story. We'll get into um, how this movie got put together, how it was orchestrated by actor Jane Fonda. We'll talk about the cast. We always love to talk about the cast, and this is a phenomenal cast for this movie, 9 to 5. Such a big part of the trajectory of the movie, as well as getting the uh, writer and director involved. Um, We'll talk about the type of comedy that this movie is and what it employs as far as that goes. Of course, we'll go into, we we have to talk about the song. Can we even play the song just the whole time? Can we just close out the episode with it? We'll also go into uh, the legacy of this movie, how it still continues to be important today, the different incarnations that it it has become over the years. Yeah, and the success of the movie and it spawned a... uh long lasting television series oh yeah that's right that's right so a lot to talk about uh, after that of course we'll get into our picks of the week so i decided to go the dabney coleman route and i went with 1984's uh fantasy adventure movie cloak and dagger oh did you i don't think we talked about that i didn't know that we didn't talk about it so that was a genuine surprise <laughs> a genuine reaction out of Lindsay right there oh i guess uh Spoiler alert, I also did Cloak and Dagger. Just kidding, I didn't. That would be messed up because then you would get it genuinely. <laughs> what? <laughs> but then it would have made for kind of a wild episode, like a face-off of like who mm-hmm. did their pick of the week better. But I think, and then we could have taken it to a vote on Instagram and my feelings probably would have gotten hurt. So 
I highly doubt that. What was your pick of the week? My pick was from 1984 starring Lily Tomlin, a little movie called All of Me. All of Me is a good pick. Man, I haven't seen that in a long time. That used to come on television all the time when I was younger. And I don't think I always quite understood the humor in it, but I knew something was going on that was funny. I think I say this about every five episodes. That I mean, my mom is the reason that I know so much about movies, especially in the 80s. Uh, All of Me was one that I saw a lot as a kid, but watching it again as an adult, and somehow it's been in my DVD collection. I don't even know how. I don't know when I picked it up, but I've owned it all these years and haven't watched it in such a long time. And wow, does it play differently as an adult. I enjoy it so much more. Yeah. I mean, obviously than I did when I was eight years old. Yeah. That's when I got I got to revisit that one in the next few weeks. Well, we'll round things out with our Murray moments, but before we go into our first clip from nine to five Lindsay, can you just give us the quick brief uh storyline here your own interpretation of what this movie is about well if you haven't seen this film it centers around three female office workers all under the same sexist egotistical lying hypocritical bigot of a boss after forming a friendship united in their disdain for inequality in the workplace and tired of being treated unfairly one of the women accidentally poisons the boss. In order to cover up the mishap, the trio band together, turn the tables on the boss, and decide the man's going to start working for them for a change. I think that sums it up real nice. There's a lot of comedy that happens in there with the poisoning. So much comedy. We'll go into a clip for 9 to 5. We'll be right back. What a rat. What a liar. What a creep. I think he told everybody I was sleeping with him. So unfair. Just so unfair. Twelve years of service and he shoots me down. We've got to do something. He can't just treat people like that. Do. What's to do? Quit? Well, I can't quit. It's the same all over anyway. Well, look, couldn't we just all get together and... and complain? Complain to who? Let's face it, we are in a pink collar ghetto. Let's have another drink. This one's on me. I've got it. It's my turn. I've got it. I've really got it. What's that? Violet, I didn't think you smoked. Do you roll your own? This is a gift from my son. Let's just pop over to the ladies' room and light up. Is that one of them marijuana cigarettes? We don't have enough for everybody. Cool it. Come on. No, I don't know. We can't do that, Violet. Someone might come in. It is dangerous, Violet. Would you two show a little spunk? I mean, what are you, a man or a mouse? I mean, a woman or a louse? <laughs> hey, why don't we go to my house? My husband's out of the singing gig. We'll have the whole place to ourselves. We could have ourselves an old-fashioned ladies' pop party. <laughs> you know, to tell you the truth, all that stuff really don't do that much for me. I smoked a marijuana cigarette at a party once. I I could never figure out what the big deal was. I always find the uh, way ideas come about for movies to be very interesting, just sort of that train of imagination or, you know, where someone was driving in the car and then the idea hit them for something turned into a story, which turned into a script, which turned into (laughs) a classic movie that we all love. And 9 to 5 uh, very much started the same way. The idea uh, started circling around in Jane Fonda's brain, and she ended up spearheading this whole movie. But where she got the idea from, uh, I think, is every bit as interesting as the, the movie itself. 
and almost a decade, if not longer than that before, America had already been through this period of change where whether it was based on race, you know, sexual orientation, gender, um, there were all these different bisects of society that were all demanding and wanting equality and felt like they had a voice to at least try to start speaking up about it. Coinciding with all of this, the labor force also begins to push for equality in the workplace. And women were it more so in the workforce in the 70s, as you might expect. I mean, it's still kind of how it is today. Women are not legally not paid as, as much as men. This is still a fight today. But in the early 70s, there was a group, uh, 73, the 925 National Association of Working Women, and it kind of formed out of this newsletter the year before. It was called 9 to 5, which was dedicated to spreading the word about improving working conditions, focusing on women's rights, and addressing the low pay, lack of advancement that women often faced in the workplace. Now, this group gained a little bit of traction um, a short while after, after winning a lawsuit and awarding the female plaintiffs involved about, I think it was like a million and a half or two million dollars um, in back pay for being unequally paid. In 75, that group joined up with the SEIU, the Service Employee International Union, and formed the local 925. This was furthering this uh, idea that was based on this original newsletter in 72 to embolden office workers to know their rights and encourage them to start thinking about bargaining tools, like how to argue for your rights in the workplace. A little bit while later, in 77, the Boston 925 joins up with a working women's organizing project, which was headed by Karen Nussbaum. Karen Nussbaum had been involved in the anti-war movement. Of course, this was during the Vietnam War, and she'd been a longtime objector um, to the war. As was Jane Fonda, who is one of the three main stars of 9 to 5, and also the one who really got this project rolling. So as Karen Nussbaum is you know, in the middle of this and using the media to raise awareness and working on lobbying legislators to make change and working on these educational programs to to, to help women realize, you know, their, their rights in the workplace and really learning that they have a voice and they can speak up. She and Jane Fonda crossed paths, became friends. Fonda finds out about this, and she was already involved with civil rights movements, um, the feminist movements, very anti-war environmentalism. Like Jane Vonda was out there. So these two form a friendship. She finds out about this and is very moved and thinks, I just started my production company, IPC, and I really want to bring awareness and shine a light on what is happening in the workforce. And it's not to say like Jane Fonda, it's not like she didn't come from money. Her father was actor Henry Fonda. You know, she also had plenty of kind of, you know, run of the mill jobs too, but it wasn't like she wasn't famous, but she wanted to use her fame in order to make a difference. So she thinks that this is a perfect idea for a movie, a good drama to get, get across a, political point to get across a message to make a difference. So she teams up with her producing partner, Bruce Gilbert, gets him involved, and they start kind of looking for ideas um, on how to make something like this work and using women in the workplace. And, and I mean, not just um, mainly focusing on secretaries, but you know, there were men involved too in this, but predominantly, um, this is going to be a female centered idea. So Jane and Bruce start looking into these stories and just kind of doing research, kind of 
trying to come up with an idea like a springboard and they come across a story of someone trying to murder their boss and think, okay, this is a good place to start. And, you know, had already had this idea of making it a drama. We've got this attempted murder thing. Okay. But maybe this was a little bit too heavy. Maybe this wasn't the trajectory that they really thought that they should be shooting for. Yeah, it seemed like every time they tried to go the drama route, the movie was coming off, or the idea of the movie was coming off preachy or too heavy-handed. And so once the idea to make it a comedy hit, that really got the ball rolling. Sparks started to fly as far as like who they could cast and, and what direction they should go. Um, so they hooked up with Patricia Resnick, who started a career uh, working on working as an uncredited writer on one of my favorite movies of the 70s, Robert Altman's Three Women, had done a few other scripts. And so they had Patricia Resnick uh, hash out the first uh, comedic version of this movie, the first draft of Nine to Five, before bringing Colin Higgins in to, you know, work his side of it and and Jane Fonda's ideas and and really making it more of like a a collaborative script. And it is uh, credited being co-written by... uh, Patricia Resnick and uh, Colin Higgins. The, the story credit does go to Patricia Resnick, I believe, because she uh, did do the initial first screenplay. All right. So as the script is being developed and ideas are being fleshed out, Jane Fonda happens to go see Lily Tomlin's uh, one woman show and just absolutely falls in love with her and and thinks this is the woman that I want to be involved with this and doesn't approach her immediately but thinks this is who I want, this is who I want to have involved, gets in her car, driving home, and hears Two Doors Down by Dolly Parton on the radio and thinks, oh my god, okay, Dolly Parton's never been in a movie, people would totally go see this, we have to get her involved too. Now, you might be Jane Fonda and have a lot of pull and be, you know, have a lot of clout behind you, but, you know, just because you want to get two people involved doesn't mean it's going to be the easiest thing. So she does approach Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, and both of them uh, are kind of reluctant in the idea of of doing it. Lily Tomlin doesn't necessarily see herself in the role, and Dolly Parton, it's not that she, you know, doesn't necessarily see herself in it. She's just a little reluctant at first, and Jane Fonda brings this up numerous times that it it took quite a while. I I keep thinking it was like around a year or something that it, it took to convince them. But in the meantime... The script started being worked around both of those actors and working around their strengths. And basically, especially for Dolly Parton, just developing that character as if it kind of were Dolly Parton. So the script does eventually start revolving and being written around um, these specific actors for these roles. And Jane Fonda kind of takes a back seat to these other two actors. And that was very intentional on Jane Fonda's part. And no, I think that's great that she put this whole thing together, but not so much as, as a centerpiece for her character. Um, even though the movie does like open on her character and and the assumption is is that this is all about her, but it, it, it quickly unfolds that it's about multiple women's lives and multiple characters. Once they convinced both Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin to come on board, they did need a director to helm this thing. And they looked to Colin Higgins, who had started out 
a career as a writer director with a very I guess it's like a cult hit. I don't know how big of a hit it was at the time was Harold and Maud, but as a writer he had a great success with Silver Streak, followed by writing and directing Foul Play. He was chosen as the director also to come aboard and help uh, collaborate on the script to further drafts of the script and add some more humor to the movie. And once Colin Higgins came aboard, the fleshing out of these characters and who they were uh, really started to become become a, a more important aspect of the script. So Jane Fonda organized uh, sit-down meetings with women from the National Association of Working Women uh, with Karen Nussbaum and actually asked like 30, 40 women about their experiences in the workplace and structured a lot of what happens in the script around uh, what happened to these women in their in their real lives. So not only, you know, are, are the characters being tailored for Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton and, and what they can do, but also everything that's happening in the script is pretty much inspired by all of these stories that they're hearing from real women, including the fantasy scenes, the three fantasy scenes of Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton, how they would exact revenge on their boss, Dabney Coleman. I don't know. I thought that that was really funny, that that was one thing that Colin Higgins asked, like, have you ever fantasized, you know, about getting revenge on your boss? And pretty much like everyone was like, yes. And it's like the craziest story you've ever heard and half the stuff they couldn't even put in the movie. And it's interesting because the fantasy sequences, I think, are such a bold part of the movie. They're such a big part of the movie, too, that it's easy to forget that there's so much that happens after the fantasy sequences. That was something that surprised me because I hadn't seen the movie in so long. For some reason in my mind, I thought, man, isn't half of the movie just like fantasy sequences? But really, it's not. It's just like this small portion, but they're just done so well and so funny. It's a great way that they use to set up individually where each character's coming from the way their own personal fantasy is on revenge. It says a lot about a person. You know, if you ask, you know, you always sometimes, you know, you're having a few drinks and you ask, oh, what if you could do this? Or, you know, what if you could get revenge on this someone? Or, you know, you go down those dark paths of conversations sometimes. Um, so I think that that's really relatable in the movie, but I do like that they made the fantasies tailor-made to their each specific character um, but also kept the humor in there and kept it. It's very dark. I mean, the humor in this movie <laughs> goes from extremely goofy, I think, at times. You know, it's like off the wall, goofy at times, but then extremely sharp and witty and then also like so, so dark. And I think these uh, these fantasy sequences are, are a good uh, example of that. I think it's a good way to kick off the movie because the beginning of the movie is kind of a big setup. You know, they're establishing the office. They're establishing how they're treated in the workplace. And once you get past that, once they kind of like lean on each other for, you know, they commiserate with each other about how terrible their boss is. We go into that first night where they get stoned together and, and really, uh, the, the fantasy sequences kick off. And it's, it's funny cause the eighties were so full of fantasy sequences. I mean, so many movies went that route, but I think this is one of the early, uh, movies that did that. And I think also did it in the best possible way. And it was the first comedy that Jane Fonda had produced. And as a fan of screwball comedies, you can see that that influence that she had over the, over the tone of the movie. But when you get down to those, the fantasy sequences, um, and I didn't notice this until really like 
you know, diving in these last couple times through. One thing, I think we talk about this in horror movies and in past recent past episodes, like foreshadowing, like you really see it happen sometimes in, you know, in a movie. It happens multiple times in nine to five. Three of those times are during the fantasy sequences, but you are so distracted by what's happening in the fantasies that you're not even thinking, oh, this is something I'm going to need to remember for later in the movie. But there's so many little, it's just a really crafty uh, way to like insert a very common writing technique into a story. Uh, I just love that it's a, it's in there. It's very obvious, but you, you don't notice it until well after it's already happened. And and to the the writing style in this for comedy is it does walk that perfect fine line of you know there's situational comedies they're setting up jokes and situations but then there's moments where they have to have a story that evolves because to take the viewer from point A to point B you know unless you're dropping jokes every twenty seconds like Naked Gun you need like an actual like legit story and a lot of times with comedies. You know, it's such a plain Jane kind of story that you can get kind of bored because you're just like, oh, man, there's not much to it. But this one actually, I think it has a lot of heart and they pepper in a lot of uh, legitimate things that were going on in real people's lives that were l- relatable, like whether they're trying to change the dynamics and the structure of the office so that workers are happier, they're safer. Um, they feel well more respected. They feel self worth. They actually change the dynamic of the office while their boss is away, while they're scheming, and there's all these ridiculous, funny setups going on. They're actually like making things better for their coworkers and caring about other people, and that's something that you don't often see in comedies, uh, especially in in comedies that are darker, because you know the 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 humor can be more. I don't want to go as far as say the word mean-spirited, but um, you don't necessarily see characters like getting, you know, warm and and wanting to help a a ton of people out. Yeah, there's a lot of selfless moments in this, like the changes that the women are making in the office in the absence of Mr. Hart being, you know, tied up in in a house. In his absence, they're making all of these positive changes for everyone, but they're doing it under his name, you know, in order, one, to get away with it. But it's also kind of selfless in a way. Like, it's not like they're trying to take credit for something. They're just wanting to make a difference and wanting to make a change, make something positive, stand up for the underdog. And while this is a revenge comedy, it's also a lot of social commentary in the whole the whole idea is, you know, going back to not making this a drama, making it a comedy, but you're throwing in all of this information and doing it in a funny way that's making you see the point of the entire film. You know, we'll get into more about this when we talk about cast, but the Mr. Hart, Dabney Coleman's character, I, I think the writing is really great for him because, you know, you need to have a character who is someone that you hate, but who's also dopey enough that you kind of like him in some ways, but also you don't want to make him too over the top, like mean, violent, because later on, whenever they, you know, are holding him hostage at his house, you need to have his character have him be goofy there too, so that it it keeps the tone of the movie light still. Because I think if you would have had him, 
you know, because he's a smaller guy, and I think if you'd have had like a big like if you'd have went their like Harvey Weinstein route, you know, later on when they're trying to hold him hostage, I think you would have had a totally tonally a much different movie. Having Dabney Coleman's character written in a much more lighter, but yet still scheming, and you know, he he's is a sleaze you know, bag. Yeah, he's a sleaze bag. He's a sleaze bag. But they, I think, they did a good job of of showing a side of him that works for later in the movie. And they also, uh, going back to the fantasy sequences, I think really do a great job of showing him feeling helpless. You know, he does a really good comedic job of of feeling helpless against these women whenever they flip the script during the fantasy sequences. The point of that is we, we see him in normal everyday life in the office, he's stealing ideas from Lily Tomlin's Violet character. So he's a small man that really doesn't have too much behind him, but he has this bravado and ego behind him that because he's a man, he gets away with it. In the fantasy sequences, we feel sorry for him because that sense of being a small man comes out in a much more innocent way than it does in in real life in the as far as him being a sleazebag to Dolly Parton you know I mean it's straight up sexual harassment but he's not doing it in a violent way it's really pathetic actually and the way that he comes at her um, she does have the upper hand but it's I mean it doesn't make it right in any way but I think that that's the way that it's not like a Harvey Weinstein type of thing. He's not being overly gross about it. He's It's pathetic. I think that that's the way that you make this work for a comedy when you do bring up such a serious issue like sexual harassment. And in 1980, when basically sexual harassment wasn't being talked about, it was just accepted that that's, you know, kind of like how it was. Even Dolly Parton's character accepts it you know that it's happening even though she tells him no it's very much just like a thing that you you have to put up with but the reason yeah that we don't completely hate him is the way that it's presented and had yeah had this been a drama yeah it wouldn't have been pretty when and exactly what you're saying you know like uh, you know it is straight up sexual harassment and you think about if this movie came out today in the exact same tone and style uh, <laughs> this movie would just get ripped apart because they'd be like how dare they you know like make yeah. light of these situations but nobody but like you said nobody was talking about i mean this movie when you when you frame it in you know 1980 like 40 years ago this was some bold stuff and of course they had to mask yeah. it with a, a lot of goofiness and humor and when you watch it you know sometimes you quite you know, I question like, why, why did they make this as goofy? You know, there's like so much you could do, but it's like, well, you couldn't really, I mean, this wouldn't have made a hundred million dollars if they approached sexual harassment in the way that it should have been approached. That's why when you watch this movie now, you're like, this was like groundbreaking stuff for 1980. It totally was, you know, it's not like the feminist aspect to this movie was muted or subdued due to the comedic nature of the film. It was just a different way to get across a point. And I think they skated by for how kind of sneakily subversive this movie is in a lot of ways. It's like the strength of the women involved and just a crafty story is, uh, like you said, just really bold. It's also a movie, too, that you didn't see a lot of in, in that was it is a buddy comedy where all the leads are women, you know, and they're not fighting mm-hmm. against each other. Um, yeah. They're all working together and they become friends and succeed in what they're, you know, they set goals for themselves and they succeed. And that in and of itself was a movie that you didn't see. And then you combined it with, uh, you know, framing it around an issue that that needed attention, somewhat politically driven, unique comedy that uh, unfortunately, you know, was a big success. And Hollywood said, you know, 
we don't need to make another one of these for a while, but <laughs> which is a shame. You yep. Know? But uh, let's stop there. Let's let's go into another clip from nine to five. Um, we'll come back. We'll talk about the cast and we'll also talk about uh, that uh, incredible song that Dolly Parton wrote for the movie. Sounds good. Good evening, ladies. May I see your license and registration, please? Why? I wasn't speeding. I didn't say you were. Your taillight is blinking. It is? Are your signals on? No. Well, there must be a short in the trunk. A short in the trunk? We've got a short in the trunk. Oh. Probably just a defective wire or something. You want to take a look? Do we want to take a look? No, we can't, officer. We don't have time. We're on an emergency. That, that's right. She's a doctor. Oh, you're a doctor? What do you think I am, a beautician? I'm sorry, doctor. I didn't see your badge. What's the trouble? The trouble is I'm taking this woman to the hospital, and she's very sick. Which one of you is sick? I am. She is. They're both sick. What is that you're hiding there? What, this? Yes. It's rat poison. She ate it. What? She ate the rat poison. That's why they're sick. You ate the rat poison? I thought it was skinny and sweet. <laughs> it looks just like skinny and sweet. Except for the little skull and crossbones on the label. C can we go now, officer? I'm not feeling very well. My God, did you hear that? She's not feeling very well. I've got a, a dying woman on my hands, and you want to look for a short in the trunk? I'm sorry, doctor. If we don't make it to the hospital on time, I'm holding you responsible. Well, don't worry, doctor. I'll give you an escort. An escort? Who's going to give us an escort? Oh, Lord. Just hang on, ladies, and follow me. Forget I'll... it, Mac. We can't wait. <laughs> So it's got to be pretty great when you have your dream cast laid out. You're writing a movie for these characters and you get the the cast members that you want to agree to be in the movie. And it certainly comes across on screen. This movie seems like a labor of love. Like the characters, from what I can understand and everything I've read, got along just as well off screen as they did on screen. And it's kind of wild. I saw one uh, interview with Colin Higgins, who almost kind of suggested that he expected there to be some like bickering, you know, or like mm -hmm. competitiveness between the actors, which I thought was kind of odd that he threw that out there, maybe because all three of them were such superstars at the time. But yeah, it really seemed like Jane Fonda had a true love and respect for both Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin and uh, took a little convincing, but uh, both came around and all three give, I think these like unique individual performances that I think you, you, you know, you care about all three characters or all three are endearing. It's, it's honestly, if I, I it's hard for me to pick, like if, if I had to pick a favorite of the three, <laughs> I, I don't know that I, that I could do it. Yeah. I don't know if I can either. I do agree though with Colin Higgins. I, I would kind of assume that too. They're, they were all very strong in their specific areas that they were coming from. So it wouldn't have been surprising. Kind of the same thing with Steel Magnolias. Like I w would not have been surprised either if someone had an ego on the set too. But yeah. like Steel Magnolia, maybe it's just the magic of Dolly. It must be. And I, I kind of wanted to start with Dolly because it is Dolly December. And, and we're going to also come back to Dolly when we talk about this song. But 
it blows me away that this is Dolly Parton's feature film debut. That, <laughs> right? that Jane Fonda was like, you know who would be great in this movie? Dolly Parton, who clearly had been on camera for years and done many live performances and television performances. I mean, she, you know, she was no stranger to the camera, no stranger to, you know, putting on a show, putting on a performance. But um, the actual process of making a film, she, you know, was not familiar. If you know anything about this movie, certainly you've heard the stories of Dolly Parton showed up and she had memorized the entire script because she thought that's what you're supposed to do. She'd never done a movie before and everybody thought it was hysterical that she knew everybody else's lines um, and that she thought they were just going to do the whole thing, you know, in sequence, that they weren't going to break things up. She was ready for everything. But I think that also is a lot of Dolly Parton's character. She's like got this drive. Her work ethic is insane. And, um, but she also has this very real and honest way about her voice and her portrayal and her character that just pops on screen. Did you by any chance come across any videos from the premiere of, of this movie? Because it was I, I did not. Hi- highly entertaining. Um, well, one, Burt Reynolds, I think, said it best, was that Dolly Parton's the biggest movie star who's never been in a movie. I mean, it just, it that is exactly correct. Um, but Dolly Parton talking about her, her own performance, there's an interviewer who's saying that she's just incredible in the movie and has such a big acting career ahead of her and just really just shines on screen. <laughs> Dolly's response is something like, you know, I think for the most part, I'm I'm pretty good. There's a few times I'm like, all right, and then a few that I'm like, <laughs> Dolly, you're at your own premiere, and you were just being so self-deprecating and adorable. Um, but she really does shine in this movie, and for being your first movie, it is incredible. And I'm sure that some of that is, you know, it being based upon her that she did play Dorley, like how Dolly Parton would be if she were thrust into that situation. But I don't think that it comes across in any type of unreal sense. Right. Um, Like the person that she is, not that Dolly Parton's not bigger than life or, you know, unreal in some way. If anything, Dolly Parton, for as big of a megastar as she is, seems so down to earth and relatable and in this movie just her performance it's so natural and if there were anyone who i'd want to welcome me into a, a new office it, god it would be Lee. she has a disarming feel to her i think that that's part of dolly parton's charm and part of the charm of the character another thing that works so well with her uh, is just the fact that she is so relatable and i think with the character of Lee. That, you know, she's this woman that everyone in the office is talking behind her back and saying that she's sleeping with the boss and she's not. In fact, she's thwarting his efforts and trying to not lose her job and trying to be respectful, even though she hates what's happening. Um, And that, again, goes back to kind of Dolly Parton and kind of who she is and what she's put up with her whole life, especially like growing up being the odd girl out. That's kind of how she's treated at work in the beginning too, before she and uh, Judy and Violet, all three of them team up and become friends. And I also too like that she, in a lot of ways is like the voice of reason later on in the movie when they're, they kind of switch, you know, I like that their characters, you know, in the beginning, uh, Lily Tomlin is kind of like the leader in the voice of reason, but then later in the movie, 
uh, when things start spir- spiraling out of control, Dolly Parton kind of steps up and, and she kind of like is the more assertive, like take charge and is like, you know, everybody just relax. Here's what we need to do. It's not a, a movie where one character's the leader, one character's the follower. We have one that's a comedian. I like that, like, it's um, interchangeable. Yeah. I, I love that aspect too. And I think the biggest character arc we have of all three of them is Judy Burnley, the uh, Jane Fonda character. I mean, for the most part, it's everyone kind of, they retain exactly who they are, but they work together as a group and as kind of the whole spirit of what they're trying to create in their work atmosphere is everyone working together as a community and helping each other and all being one, all being part of, of this machine to make everything work. I do have to say, though, I think Dolly gets the most laughs from me anyway, because like there's a part in there, the part where she asks what cologne <laughs> Mr. Hart's wearing, the look that she gives. I, I don't know if anyone out there knows what I'm talking about, but the look that she gives when he answers her, she perfectly embodies what a man does to a woman in a situation like that. It's so good. And you can tell that she's dealt with that in her life by the way that she plays it. And even the non-fantasy sequence, when she, one of the greatest parts in the whole movie, I mean, this movie has a billion, one, not even one-liners, but just lines of dialogue that are so good, but where she says, I'm going to change you to a rooster to a hen with one shot, like, that's not even a fantasy sequence. The woman just has some guts and stands up for herself. I, I could just keep going on with Dolly lines. Yeah, she's so great in it. <laughs> But uh, we should move on. We should move on to Jane Fonda. (laughs) Um, Jane Fonda, who orchestrated this whole thing. I mean, she was a superstar when this movie came out. I mean, she had had uh, started doing romantic comedies in in the 60s and then moved into more uh, really eccentric and in interesting roles in the seventies and on screen, like took a lot of chances off screen was an activist and a radical and always uh, drew a lot of controversy in the beginning of the movie. It almost doesn't look like Jane Fonda. I mean, you kind of see her yeah. <laughs> in a way that you've never really seen her. Like, you know, she had been a, a sex symbol at one point in her career and like almost kind of looks older than she is in the beginning of the movie. Um, and then, you know, opens up a little bit, but I love the way that she plays this, Um, And then kind of goes against uh, the way she had been portrayed in movies and how people like viewed her in real life. I really love that she, you know, downplayed her persona in the beginning to, I think, comedic effect in the same way that she brought this whole movie together. She's the one that sort of slowly brings these characters together and then uh, helps, you know, infiltrate the office and, you know, has a lot of ideas on like how they could change things and make things better for the office. And the thing with Judy is that she starts off as timid. This is like the first job that she's ever had. Jane Fonda talked to plenty of women who went into the workforce and, you know, this was their their first job that they had. And she really based her character on the women that she had talked to and, and their experiences um, entering the workforce. So you see her being so timid, but you see there have been a lot of things in her life that we can infer and that we see in her interactions with her ex-husband and how she's treated she's just never really known that she could speak up for herself and it's not that it wasn't within her the whole time because like i said we see the character arc in her that she does speak up for herself and she doesn't let her ex-husband continue to walk all over her and you know she kicks him right on out the door but how she plays this role i think was just so intelligent and i've got to give jane fonda credit for taking 
um, the role of that that was playing against type. I think uh, for someone like her, it it would have been you know it would have been easy to be the lead when this is when this is your passion project. Um, but all three characters do have. It's not like anyone's fighting for screen time or there's any vibe like that in the movie. It's kind of that same feeling. I keep thinking about Daryl Hannah in Steel Magnolias. Yeah. You know, I, I keep going back to that. And it's probably just because that was the last episode. But it has that similar vibe that you're right. It kind of doesn't look like Jane Fonda in the beginning of the movie. But she is exactly who she is when she starts off. She's just realized that she has a lot more guts within her than she than she uh, was ever allowed to realize. And moving on to Lily Tomlin, tell me if you think I'm wrong here. I think Lily Tomlin's role is the meatiest of the three. It's the role that kind of it's like has the most fun, you know, because, you know, she <laughs> she's a tough character. She's intelligent. But then she also is the one that's able to rattle off like the sort of like mean one liners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's the funniest character to me. I mean, I love Dolly Parton. I love Jane Fonda in this. But I think Lily Tomlin a lot of times like, st- <laughs> you know, steals the movie. This character is like multifaceted. And I love that they show her at home and they establish like, you know, she's a single mom. She's raising her kids. She's kind of gruff. You know, she can fix a garage door. But then when she's in the office, you know, she knows twice as much as the boss does. She's basically running the company you know she 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 gets real punchy i love it when lily yeah. Tomlin gets punchy and i think yeah. she does that in a lot of movies you know that's she she really has like dialed that in over the years she's so good at delivering humor and i don't just mean with one-liners like this dry sense of not necessarily she's not saying funny things but she's saying things in a funny way you know that isn't necessarily going for the joke you know whether it's Someone saying, here, I need you to put this memo on the bulletin board and her saying, thank you. I know just where to stick it. You know, (laughs) come on. It's one of the best lines in the movie. One thing that nine to five does as far as the, the development of the story, especially with her character, I think in some ways, if we were to base this in reality, her gutsiness could definitely work um, in some office situations. In other office situations, if she had a different boss, her ass would be gone real fast because she doesn't back down necessarily. If she's confronted, will be like, okay, I recognize my place. I'm going to have to do this, but I am also going to stand up for myself and I'm going to say... Okay, I'll go buy your wife a scarf, but just so you know, that's not my job description. So that way of standing up for herself, but also knowing that she has to play the game. The way that it's written and established in the beginning of saying that she trained Mr. Hart, that Dabney Coleman, we know that basically they're equals and she knows exactly everything that Dabney Coleman is about, that he is kind of a wiener of a guy. And not that she can dominate him necessarily. It's not really like about that. Just based on the fact that she's known him since he's been at the company and she's watched him be promoted while she stayed the same rank. I think that it adds so much more depth to her character. And we understand even more why she does allow herself to, you know, to stand up for herself, speak the way that she does to the boss without necessarily being fearful that she's going to lose her job. Oh, and I, I, and I like too how, you know, I said, was saying earlier how like, you know, the characters are really interchangeable in their, you know, one person's leading. And I, and I love that Lily Tomlin is the, she starts out so strong and like, she's kind of, they're following her lead, but then after she thinks she's killed, 
uh, her boss, you know, she sort of starts spiraling, goes into almost like slapdash humor. Um, yeah. It, Just and, stick a fork in me. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. You know, I'm a murderess. <laughs> um, I, I just really love the way that, you know, she kind of like loses control and mm-hmm. everybody, you know, and her friends have to kind of like step up to, to take charge. It's um, going back to that whole idea of picking each other up and this, uh, of, of all being one, all being equal and uh, a sense of community. Yeah. And, and I think that's what works great. I mean, I think the best comedy is is when char- there's a push and pull, you know, like they're each an actor is allow, you know, a comedic actors allowing room for the other person to, you know, have their humorous moment and then they react accordingly. And a lot of times that it's like symbiotic and it, it makes it even more funny because the line is funny and the reaction is funny and you put that together and, you know, you, you've got some, some comedy magic. Yeah. And the heavy, we should say the heavy, the person who creates the conflict in this movie is Mr. Hart played by Dabney Coleman. I love Dabney Coleman. I feel like he's like a dad that I grew up with in the eighties. Um, but, and I, I really wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone else for this because he's kind of a lovable, like teddy bear in some ways, but he's also a total dick. Like both times when he, like, especially towards the end when he feels like he has the upper hand and he's like, Oh no, no, you guys sit right here. I'm just going to explain to you how I'm going to send you three bitches to jail. Like the way he delivers that line is so scary almost, you know, I'm just like, it's, well, it's over now. Like he's serious. He has such a great presence and he also found a way to play this character without the character coming off cartoony, which I think could have mm-hmm. easily happened. Um, especially as, as when he's, you know, captured by them and he's being, you know, held hostage in his own home and like <laughs> strapped up with like chains and, and leather. And uh, I think he is able to maintain some bit of like normalcy, like, you know, his his tone still seems serious and you still believe that, you know, he's like super pissed off and, you know, he's going to exact his revenge. He's like scheming still, like trying to get out of the situation. I find him to be really great. I think this is one of his best roles. The the mustache like works on no actor more than Dabney Coleman. I feel like Dabney Coleman's like the guy that like he he's like just had a mustache since he was in like the third grade. <laughs> I think you're right about that. It was Lily Tomlin, too, that recommended him for this movie. Just his uh, sleazy charm, I think, is what she said, is is what she's always really loved about him and his his comedic timing. I mean, he'd been doing TV for quite some time, was on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and had done a few movies before this, uh, but this was his first major star. I mean, I would say this is a starring role. Like, I mean, all three of the women are, are the stars, but I mean, he has, he's as just as much of, of the plot as they are. And it did take some studio convincing for, uh, for him to be involved, but I wouldn't want anyone else, uh, to, to pull this one off. Yeah. And there's also a great uh, bit of, of comedy, great casting from, you know, some side characters in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. workers in the office that have some great comedic bits and also um, <laughs> really push. Yeah. One of my favorite. I think the Atta Girl is the. Atta Girl. 
But yeah, Peggy Pope, she just has like, as as Margaret has some of the best lines. I love that she's just kind of sauced through the whole movie, you know, but then later on has like this because of their their program, um, you know, like pulls herself together and, and you have this like nice little heartwarming moment at the end. Mr. Hart doesn't recognize her because <laughs> you know, she's like full <laughs> of energy. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like she was a face that I saw in so much. Like she's in, isn't she in the last Starfighter? Yeah, she's in like My, a billion movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember the, her face in in so many things. Great, competent actor. She actually passed away this year, so R.I.P. Peggy Pope. R.I.P. Um, let's see who else. Elizabeth Wilson, who plays Roz, the right arm, eyes, ears, throat, <laughs> everything of. Mr. Hart, man, she is a great character actor. And I mean, when I think of sometimes I've gone into public restrooms and have checked under the stall to see if there are feet. It's not because I'm like looking for like a scream person. It's like I'm looking for Roz, actually. I'm looking for somebody in there like taking notes on what's happening in the bathroom. There's no job that anyone has ever worked where your first day there, (laughs) someone informs you, by the way, if you know, just whatever. If you're talking to so-and-so, whatever you say is going to be repeated. So I wouldn't, you know, say anything too personal or about, an, you know, if you're going to shit talk. You know, there's always that person at every job. Elizabeth Wilson, again, recommended by Lily Tomlin, too. Um, so happy she's in this movie. A lot of other bit parts sprinkled in of, of faces that you've seen from TV and other movies. This is one of those movies that just has such a strong leading cast. 40 years of kudos to Jane Fonda for, for putting this whole thing together. Yeah, Jane Fonda really made an important piece of history. It is sad that 9 to 5 is still so relevant and timely in a movie that was made 40 years ago. But if anything... That's one of the reasons it's so important and will continue to be everlasting and important and such a anthem for not only women, but regular blue collar, just like people that are doing the do, that are just going to their regular everyday jobs. It is such an inspirational movie. And, you know, speaking of the longevity of the movie, I mean, th- this is a movie that uh, was an enormous hit. You know, I mean, like $100 million at the box office for 1980. Uh, especially for a, a comedy that had an all-female cast that somewhat of like a, a, a social conscience to it. You know, that I think, you know, this was a big hit with not only women, but with men as well, and with critics as well. And this movie was so successful that it spawned a television series that I think lasted six to seven seasons, was a ratings hit as well. Really, you know, I think it's a good a good call for a TV series because there's, you know, it takes place in, a, in an office, there's so much you can do to expand on this story and these characters. One kind of interesting thing that I did not know until I started looking into it, because I feel like I saw some of this show growing up. You know, I don't know that it was something that appealed to me as a little kid, but um, Rachel Dennison, who is Dolly Parton's sister in real life, plays uh, the character that Dolly Parton played in the movie. And the TV show also had uh, Sally Struthers um, as one of the leads as well. Yeah, it had a lot going for it, especially the first two seasons where Jane Fonda and Bruce Gilbert were executive producers on the show. They eventually did leave after that. You know, it was kind of plagued with a lot of recasting. If you're going to try to have any 
movie adapted into a TV show, that this would be one of the more positive ones to do. Looking back on some episodes now, it seems like the more, you know, bland, kind of non-edgy version of the movie. Maybe, like, where Murphy Brown, like, Murphy Brown probably amped it up a little bit, you know, after um, after 9 to 5. Maybe 9 to yeah. 5 opened the door for Murphy Brown, you know. It's very possible. And along with the TV show, it also spawned a musical, which is still around to this day. Um, that started in, like, 2005. So a good while after the movie, um, Dolly Parton wrote additional songs for it. It opened on Broadway in 2009 and then went on a national tour 2010. It's still around. I, this is a musical I would totally go see. And when you have a Dolly Parton writing additional songs for this production, ugh, come on. I mean, just that song alone was uh, was massive, massive for the, well, like, probably what, one of the biggest hits of the 80s? Yeah, one of the biggest hits of the 80s. Dolly Parton's biggest hit, I believe. Yeah, this was a song that, you know, Dolly Parton was smart to say, hey, if I'm going to be in this movie, I'm going to write the theme song. This was a song that she wrote during the production. As legend has it, according to her, she came up with the idea of the percussion by tapping her long fingernails on the desk for the percussive part of the song, which in the song kind of sounds like someone typing on a typewriter. They have to be um, acrylic fingernails, though. They can't be real fingernails. And, you know, lyrics being uh, kind of like trying to make it as a woman in, in a male-dominated workplace. and But really uh, as an anthem that kind of I think anybody can relate to the lyrics. And it really kind of came like a worker's anthem, an office anthem. Huge 80s hit and, you know, had crossover appeal, was like a pop hit was a huge country hit, was uh, nominated for an Academy Award, Golden Globe, music awards across the board. It's just one of those like perfect storms of a movie being a hit and the theme song of the same title being a hit. Such an 80s thing. You know, you just, it's just something <laughs> yeah. that you just never see today. You never hear about a movie. It's like, unless it's a movie that's like a musical type thing, mm -hmm. you know, like it's very rare that you're going to have the movie and then there's a actor that's in the movie and then they sing the the theme song that has the same title and it becomes this like smash hit. Yeah, I don't that I I don't think that'll ever happen again. But then again, again there's <laughs> not there's not that many Dolly Partons in the world, so. That's very true. I don't know. We could probably pull probably 7 out of 10 people today know this song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in the grocery store the other day and the song came on. <laughs> it's still played all over the place. This is a song, if it comes on somewhere, I immediately go to the volume and turn it up. And Dolly came out with an entire album um, featuring this song, and it was called 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs, kind of based around the whole idea of the everyday aspect of, of being a blue-collar worker and each song illustrating kind of uh, working-class struggles. So that's another really cool um, aspect of just the genius of Dolly Parton. And it's it's a good album. It's got uh, it's got some of that uh, late 70s disco crossover mm -hmm. kind of <laughs> pop like production v value, you know, mixed with some country and I love I I can't get enough of. Yeah, Dolly did this sly thing I didn't realize until I was an adult that I mean, technically, like, I think I liked country music as a kid, and it was because of Dolly Parton and, like, Kenny Rogers, you know? Um, but it was that crossover, that crossover vibe that wasn't just straight-up country, um, but it had enough of a pop vibe and enough of, like, a good beat that it was just, um, just kind of, like, across the board. Anybody could get down with it. 
Well, we should probably close things out here on 9 to 5, but uh, there is one last thing that we wanted to mention, uh, something that we actually stumbled upon that's that's really, really recent that is uh, relevant to this movie. Yeah, there are actually two documentaries, one that's on the film festival circuit right now called 9 to 5, The Story of a Movement, talking about what I talked about in the beginning of this episode, and then another one that doesn't have a release date that's called Still Working 9 to 5. So kind of exciting talking about, you know, inequality in the workplace and nine to five, um, how that played a role, the things that inspired the movie. It's kind of really exciting. And what an amazing thing to be a part of a film that was not only involved, but inspired people to continue on with a movement. Um, it's just such a powerful thing, you know? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't happen that often. Well, let's uh, close out there with 9 to 5. We'll come back for some final thoughts, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Lindsay, you uh, did the comedy with Lily Tomlin, All of Me. What can you tell me about that movie? Movies like All of Me just don't exist anymore. Two professionally skilled entertainers, more than one trick ponies who make each other look great with their performances. I've always been a Lily Tomlin fan, and Steve Martin consistently functions on another level. But making a film wherein two people inhabit one body could sound like a disaster even for the best of the best. But I assure you, this screwball comedy from 84 is well worth the revisit. Steve Martin plays Roger Cobb, an unfulfilled attorney whose heart truly lies in being a musician. He's directed to finalize the estate of his firm's wealthiest client, Miss Edwina Cutwater, played by Lily Tomlin who is a bedridden elitist who's been sick all of her life, never having had a chance to leave her home or do anything close to what her money should have allowed her to do had she been a healthier person. But Edwina has a plan. She can't wait to die because she's planning to leave her entire estate to her head stableman's free-thinking daughter and, more importantly, have her soul be transferred into Terry's body so that she may finally live the life of an able-bodied person. For a film which is a complete fantasy, what it does so brilliantly is make us believe the unbelievable. In no way does Roger buy into Edwina's idea of transmigration and even calls out Terry as a con artist, though we don't know if that's true until the film's third act. Martin and Tomlin are absolutely wonderful here. Tomlin's presence is so strong in her first two scenes before she dies, and we need that to establish who she is. We need to see her body movements, hear the way she speaks, get a sense of who she is, because soon we're going to see Martin acting as if he's not only Roger Cobb, but also Edwina Cutwater. And here's where the comedy is. Through a mishap in Edwina's transmigration, her soul ends up in the body of Roger, a man with whom she shares little in common, and in fact, the two greatly dislike each other. Martin's imitation of Edwina is truly a feat. We almost completely forget that she's not actually in his body. I know that sounds weird, but it really does happen in this movie. Whether it's the moment Edwina and Roger realize what's happened and they're fighting over control of Roger's body or interacting with each other in mirrors or multiple scenes of that. And I really hope my favorite scene, this last one here, inspired Jim Carrey in Liar Liar. Um, It's where uh, Roger falls asleep in the middle of arguing a court case and Edwino tries to wake him up in the middle of it while trying to argue the case and then the two have a moral struggle in the middle of court. <laughs> um, it's just like pure comedy gold and Martin's performance is a man possessed. A man playing a woman trying to act like a man while also playing a woman inside his body. Like how meta can you get? 
Martin's always been an expert at being a spaz of sorts, but all of me may be where his talents are used best at this point in his career. His energy is contained and only utilized when necessary. His meanness isn't as fierce as it is in planes, trains, and automobiles, but is still present. But Martin keeps it real here. Director Carl Reiner deserves some credit, though. He always knew how to provide great comic timing for the full impact of emotions in a scene. What we learn through All of Me is the age-old idea of living life to the fullest. And as Edwina says at one point, there's nothing sadder than looking back at the end of your life and saying, I didn't do it right. All of Me never devolves into a brainless, simple, one-joke type of comedy. There's a lot of heart here. Edwina's tragic. She's incredibly wealthy, but never enjoyed life or had friends. Perhaps the most touching moments in the story revolve around Roger seeing Edwina as a person and who got a raw deal in life, and Edwina seeing a man who has so much potential but is just wasting his life going in unfulfilling directions. As for the body swapping, which happened so much in the 80s, Martin taking on Edwina's mannerisms, these look, you know, more effeminate than Roger's normal appearance. And for the 80s, there is not one gay joke to be found. And... It would be such an easy laugh for the time, but it's just not here. I love it. I gotta mention the supporting cast, too. Um, Victoria Tennant's Terry character, her twist is a welcome surprise in the story because it chucks in some additional unexpected drama. Jason Bernard as Tyrone Wattell. He plays Roger's blind band leader and best friend. He adds some sass and humor, and their friendship dynamic is very cute on screen. A bunch of familiar faces like Madeline Smith, A Funny Farm, Richard Libertini, who I know best from the Fletch movies, Dana L. Claire. Um, I mean, I grew up watching the guy in MacGyver. There's just a ton of people, like even Selma Diamond from Night Court. There's just a ton of familiar faces in this movie. I, at least if you're around our age, probably are going to recognize more than a handful. If anyone out there is a fan of Steve Martin playing guitar, you also get a few moments in there. I got to mention the dog. Come on, Bix. Roger's best dog friend. He takes everywhere with him. It's played by a dog named Tiger. Uh, darn solid actor who should have had a lot more roles. I think this was his only film. And though All of Me could be considered a romantic comedy, it challenges that notion. And instead, it's about a man and a woman becoming friends. A spirited, good-hearted comedy where romance finally takes a back seat. Just like Tomlin and Martin's dance together over the film's ending credits, All of Me is an elegant comedy, the likes of which just doesn't exist any longer. It's in the hands of two comic geniuses under the direction of a renowned storyteller guiding us to logically deal with the absurd without going for cheap humor. It's a manic tug of war of intelligence and grace, and I wish more comedies like this existed um, that just have this much heart and mass appeal. So if you're looking for a good distraction, this one, I promise you, is well worth your time. I like that this movie is uh, unique to the body swap movies and that they're both trapped in one body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? It's not just uh, yeah, not just swapping personalities in two different bodies. And I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of the body swap movies of the 80s. I, yeah, I don't mind them. I, I mean, they're even though, you know, they play on the same kind of ideas, it, <laughs> they're still funny. Yeah. I, even, even if they're totally ridiculous or i don't know play on gender stereotypes i don't know i find them pretty funny yeah i always get a kick out of them well please remind us all about cloak and dagger it's been a second since i've seen it i've definitely watched it a time or two i feel like this was another one that was on tv a lot 
Yeah, you know, Cloak and Dagger was one that I had seen a lot on television when I was a kid, and I had not seen it since then. So I was a little skeptical going in to pick this movie. But on a rewatch, really dug this movie in kind of like what you were saying with yours. This is one of those movies that they just don't make anymore. This is a kid's movie with a lot of intelligence, a lot of real danger that I just don't think that you would see in a kid's movie anymore. And a great dual performance by Dabney Coleman. Um, the plot, for the most part, starts out in describing this. Um, seems like the most depressing movie ever, but I tell you it's not. This kid played by Henry Thomas from E.T. fame, who's mourning the death of his mother, and his father uh, works in the military and is dealing with the the morning in his own way by keeping himself very very busy so he's very neglectful of his son so his son mourning his own way he can't talk to his dad and he's kind of disappointed in his father's lack of attention so he sort of like a goes into his head and he has these uh, fantasies um, because he's really in the video games and he's created this fantasy character in his head who's kind of like a super spy who looks exactly like his dad but he's like a slicker tougher like suave version of his dad who is also played by Dabney Coleman and Dabney Coleman does a great job in this by playing like you know the sort of the uptight stuffy you know kind of dad that we're used to seeing him and then also playing this sort of goofy yet debonair you know spy action figure that has been created in in this kid's head but the movie uh kind of mixes a uh, fantasy and humor with uh, real life danger like um, it starts out where we see kind of these fantasy sequences of how the kid views things, how he's into, you know, having like missions like we would do when we were little kids. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to go on this mission and we got to go steal this Coke can from this place. And we're going to go over here and we're, you know, and he talks on walkie talkies with his friend. But then, you know, he witnesses a real life murder and this uh, guy gives him this uh, video game cartridge that has like top secret information on it. And so he tries to tell the cops, he tries to tell his dad about, you know, he witnessed this murder and nobody believes him because they're like, oh, it's another one of your fantasies. So now these bad guys are really after him. These bad guys are like tough bad guys. They're not like goofy, cartoony bad guys. They're like shooting people and like threatening him and just stuff that you wouldn't see in a kid's movie. So when you're watching it, you're like, whoa, this is like pretty intense. But they keep the... It doesn't ever get violent, and I think it's nothing that kids couldn't handle nowadays. It's a pretty tame movie, but it's really, really enjoyable. And, you know, you're watching this movie, and you're like, yeah, Henry Thomas, you know, E.T. wasn't a one-hit thing for him. I mean, he's really, really fantastic in this movie and really believable and really lovable. And Dabney Coleman, uh, again, playing two roles is like, really really great it has a very uh, satisfying ending you know things are wrapped up really nicely this was a disney film uh, i believe this came out in uh, 1984 so you can imagine it's got that very happy ending disney quality to it um, but this is uh i think i've said this about some of the other movies that i've chosen as a pick of the week this is like premier sunday afternoon kicking back you know if you've had a long saturday night um, putting this on, you know, at like one in the afternoon and just kicking back and enjoying a few hours and relax, relaxing. There's like no better movie for it. I highly recommend checking out Cloak and Dagger if it's one that you haven't seen in a long time or you haven't seen it all or uh, get the whole family together and throw it on. I do remember a little Henry Thomas. He's he's walking around with a gun, right? For 
some of the movie. At yeah, least, yeah. Right? Some of the movie, it's a fake gun, but yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a fake gun. That's in, right. In the beginning. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah, movies like this just don't exist. And I have to say, I love an 80s movie where a kid can save the day or the whole world's like relying on him for something. Just um, the 80s really empowered kids to think that they could, uh, you know, that they were just like adults. It uh, really surprised me how well this movie's held up, to be honest. Really? I do need to rewatch it. I think this is streaming somewhere right now. It I is on Stars right now, actually, if you want to check okay. it out. Okay. I might have to tap into your Stars account, Justin. Tap in. All right. Thank you so much for that. Well, those are our picks of the week uh, Cloak and Dagger and Alami, both from 1984. Both uh, really good movies to revisit. Um, but let's keep on moving. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. It's that time again. Time to bring you back to a video gem involving Billy that I stumbled across some years ago. With a little bit of an assist, I was able to easily sleuth out how Billy got involved with this unaired pilot documentary series called Wired In, and it even links back to a previous Murray moment. Picture this. Billy's standing on some docks of the New York City waterfront. He's on some rant about technology and just how it's moving too fast and he just doesn't trust it. Who thinks up all this high-tech stuff anyway? They start with the digital watches. Tells you what exact time it is in numbers and seconds. Who needs to know that stuff? I don't. Watches have hands. People have hands. So watches should have hands. He continues on about how R2-D2 is a fine actor, but he doesn't, you know, want him assembling a car. He just doesn't trust it. Now, there's a good chunk of unedited rehearsal footage from this thing called Wired In, but there's also an original demo, which was released in 1982. Media Burn, an independent video archive, is responsible for making sure this demo reel of Wired In will never be forgotten. So more on them in just a second. The demo reel version includes the very lovely Lily Tomlin from our main feature of discussion in my pick of the week. She's adding in her thoughts about how technology has negatively affected her life. I think it all started with a Christmas when someone gave me a digital watch. Then came a Sony Walkman, a cordless phone, a talking calculator, and it wasn't any time at all before I started playing video games. Then one morning I woke up on the floor of a video arcade and everything was a blank. I just couldn't afford that type of public humiliation again. Lily's dryly comedic confession is about her intense Pac-Man obsession in the intro of the first of five segments of this demo reel. Humor aside, Wired In is a pretty cool look into the beginning stages of top technology in the early 80s. And these are all just excerpts from what Wired In had planned for this full-fledged docuseries. Leading it off is Billy, hurried, frantic, looking at the sky and saying, Watch out! Here comes Wired In! Because Wired In is about to drop some serious knowledge on the newest 
advances in technology. Segments included video gaming and the surge in video arcades, the idea of toggling between entertainment and just stealing quarters, the whiz kids of the time who were actually teaching adults new software and emailing strangers across the globe. There's an emerging technology convention, um, a discussion on creating moving pictures with computer simulations, and even people trying to escape the technology boom. Although Wired In only exists in these shortened segments, seeing the innovations of the time is really educational, even now. And the idea behind the show was to mix fiction and actually documenting the developments at the time. About 10 years ago, MediaBurn made these and many other seemingly lost documentary clips accessible for all of the internet to see. Some of them are lost pilots, segments professionally edited and put together, a ton of raw footage. It's really a paradise for anyone who can get sucked into old technology and documentary style that really doesn't exist anymore. Lucky for me, I was able to speak with the folks behind Wired In and Media Burn, two pioneering guerrilla documentarians, Tom Weinberg and fellow filmmaker and wife Eleanor Bingham. So many of the things that we did then, because we had the equipment and no one knew what to do with it, it just would never be done today, Tom said. There was a lot of interest in new technology. It was moving fast, and there was some money in bringing a docuseries to the masses. Tom and Eleanor explain the idea of Wired In as taking actors and dumping them into documentary situations. No one messed with our content, Tom explained. It was just a unique experience. It's hard to believe that there was a time when your content wouldn't have been heavily monitored. Eleanor and Tom were also part of the trailblazing video collective TVTV, who were able to get away with getting behind the scenes of events because they were resourceful, determined, had a camera, and no one knew who they were. Ultimately, all TVTV filmmakers continued on with various other projects. It's hard to say why some of them didn't end up panning out, but like Wired In, it's probably safe to say it had something to do with corporate stifling. Remember Ace Ventura's Murray moment when I spoke about Billy being involved with TVTV? Yeah, that's Eleanor and Tom, so they knew Billy way back, way before he was on SNL. And this also makes the connection as to how Billy and Lily got involved with Wired In. They'd been a part of TVTV many years before. Back then, the idea of working amongst your friends, up-and-coming talent, Second City folks, like, there's a ton of Chicago, L.A., Canadian crossover here. The idea being to help everyone better hone their individual skills, not necessarily going for total commercial appeal. There's a ton of history here, and I could go on and on, but maybe you should just check out this Wired In Reel at Media Burn, along with all the other historically important content on the site. Oh, one more thing. I had to ask Tom and Eleanor how scripted Billy's segments were, because honestly, it's kind of hard to tell. His emotions are all over the place, from high octane to totally laid back. Here's what I was told. Billy always had the perception of being totally ad-libbed, and sometimes he is, but a skilled guy makes you think he's just coming up with stuff off the top of his head. But he's got a script. Eleanor, Tom, you guys were wonderful to speak with. Um, I think we talked for upwards of an hour and a half or two hours, um, so much beyond just this Murray moment. Um, these guys are talented fountains of knowledge, history, and really encouraging, just supportive artists. So thanks again, guys. And thanks for also being supportive of this podcast and being really tickled that this Murray Moment segment exists. And you guys are right. Maybe he will contact us one day. That'd be really amazing. They seemed like optimistic. They were like, doesn't he know about this? How does he not know about it? Someone needs to tell him about this. <laughs> 
I also love the the links you've been going lately with these Murray moments. You're like contacting people and interviewing people. And I reach out to a lot of people. Um, it hardly ever pans out, but when it does, it's, it's pretty cool. These guys, I feel like I just wanted to drive up to Chicago and like hang out with them for a weekend because they had so many stories and they were really interesting. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen the documentary that you guys are on about TV TV. And anyway, they went into a whole history with that. They're just really cool people and very thankful I got to speak with them. If you guys are listening, thank you for, for taking yeah. the time to contribute to this podcast. Truly, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay, for getting that together. That was a great Murray moment. Anytime. I love it. Well, before we close things out on 9 to 5, did you have any final thoughts? Well, one, in case anyone's curious, all three of the women are super caffeinated in that scene where they're driving in the car and have the dead body in their trunk. I loved finding that out, that that's why they're all so spastic, is because they're all really hyped up on caffeine. I guess my real final thought, though, is one of my biggest regrets in life is that because of the situation, the one time that I ran into Lily Tomlin in real life, I did not say anything to her. And it was because we were in a bathroom, like not in the same bathroom stall. That I, I, I would have said something to her if we were in the same bathroom stall. But I walked out of a stall. She was, this was in an airport. She was washing her hands and like doing extra stuff. Like, at, like she wasn't just washing her hands. She was prepping, doing something else. And it would have been weird if I just hung around and kept looking at her. So I walked out after lingering for too long and I, my mom was outside and I was like trying to get the words out that, holy shit, mom, do you know who's in the bathroom? And as I was saying that, Lily Tomlin comes out and goes behind me and I'm like, mom, mom, it's Lily Tomlin. And with that, she just disappeared. I, I lost I lost my opportunity. Man, that's a sad story, Lindsay. It really is. But Lily Tomlin, if you're listening, just know that I was thinking so many thoughts and I wanted to tell you how cool you are. So for what it's worth. As sad as that story is, though, the happy part <laughs> is, is if that's the biggest regret in your life. I mean, you're doing all right. I said one of. Oh, okay? one of. Okay. I thought you said... Do you want to go down my laundry list of regret? No, you can't regret things in life. That was just that that is an example of when you led with that. I didn't know where you were going. I thought this was <laughs> going to turn into like a therapy session. So that is just an example of if if you were faced with something where you're like, this is a once in a lifetime chance. Like, what's the worst Lily Tomlin could have said? She could have been like, what are you doing? Asking me to talk in a bathroom? Like, yeah. And she would have been right. But at least... It, at least I would have tried. I didn't try. I chickened out. Yeah. So don't chicken out. That's what I'm saying. All right, Justin. I really need to know your final thought. My final thought's pretty short. Um, kind of going back to the song 9 to 5, and I kind of wanted to close on something Dolly Parton for Dolly December. Dolly Parton was sued by a couple for the chorus of 9 to 5. They claimed that they had came up with the chorus to 9 to 5, and that they had mailed their song Money World to Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda had no recollection of getting this demo or hearing the song or ever hearing of this couple, but they did take Dolly Parton to court. Uh, Dolly Parton did try to settle out of court with some money, but they uh, decided to take her to court. The jury deliberated for all of 35 minutes before claiming... <laughs> uh, 
Dolly Parton to not be at fault. And I thought this was really cute in Dolly Parton's testimony. She sang several compositions, including Nine to Five for the jury. She also said <laughs> she doesn't know a musical motif from molasses. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what that means, but... Oh, I love her so much. That had to be pretty hard if you were suing Dolly Parton and, uh, you know, you yeah. said your piece and then Dolly Parton got up there and started singing Nine to Five and a couple other songs that she was known for. Like, how do you come back from that? You're just throwing the towel. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, they probably would have wished they would have just taken whatever money Dolly Parton mm-hmm. was going to offer them prior to going to court. Mm-hmm. That's it for 9 to 5. That's it for 2020. Thank God. Thank God that this year is coming to a close. It has been weird. <laughs> I hate that the word unprecedented has become used in unprecedented amount of times. In the past year, in the past four years, whatever. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing what is what 2021 is all about. Yeah, well, uh, 2021 will hopefully be unprecedented for us. <laughs> um, we'll be kicking off uh, 2021. Uh, we're we're going to take a five-week break to kind of recharge. We're going to come back strong. We've got a slew of great movies we're talking about, but we will be opening uh, 2021 with uh, a movie that I think is absolutely perfect, um, and that's Silence of the Lambs. That gives me many weeks to kind of like delve deep into serial killer stuff and, you know, freak myself out and, and question where I'm at in my life. We, we might need to have like a session. Oh, during... I'm ready. I'm fully ready. I'm, I'm excited about it. I am too. I love talking about this movie. It's one of my favorites. I, I would say also pretty darn perfect movie too. Yeah. So that's coming up. Um, I really cannot thank each and every listener so much for listening to us all year, even if you've tuned in a little bit. It's been a freaky year. There were times where it was difficult for us to kind of get back on track and having to do this remotely. Um, So if you've stuck with us uh, and if we've entertained you even in the least bit or taking your mind off anything. But uh, please, if you'd like to follow us on social media, if you haven't already, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. Uh, we're on Instagram. We've been doing a lot of contests lately. Uh, we'll continue to do that in the next year. So thank you for those who've uh, participated in that. If you'd like to check out old episodes, if you've missed anything, um, we have everything dating back all the way to episode zero on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. If you want to contact us for any reason whatsoever, just to say hi during our absence as well, you can always reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. It means so much you guys listen to us, so thank you. Have a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year.